Diplomatica, a journal of diplomacy and society. In the following, you'll hear a keynote lecture entitled The Shadow of the State, Nordic Jurists and International Law by Malcolm Langford, Professor of Public Law at the University of Oslo. The lecture was recorded at the University of Copenhagen on the 12th of September as a part of the workshop Nordic Jurists and Legal Internationalism. 1880s to 1970s. Enjoy. So, I wish to begin with three vignettes. In 2014, I coded the backgrounds of all International Court of Justice, ICJ, judges, which was part of an effort to understand how their prior careers might impact their adjudication on human rights. The judges were assigned the following categories, academic or judicial background, state official, or mixed. Globally, as expected, half of the appointees were state officials with academics and judges constituting 34% of appointments. And here came the surprises. On one hand, for Western European appointees, excluding the Nordics, the majority had academic and judicial backgrounds. And a fifth only had a pure state background. This was largely the same, interestingly, for South America. Also, it had a tradition since 1946 of sending mostly uh, national judges and academics to The Hague. On the other hand, there were a clear majority of states although there were a number of states for which the clear majority of appointees were government officials. These were authoritarian states, fragile democracies, and the Nordics, where two-thirds of appointees were state officials. A second vignette. In 2021, the five Nordic countries were successful in getting their candidate elected for the next five-year term of the International Law Commission, the ILC, the prestigious body charged in 1947 by the General Assembly to study international law and make recommendations for its progressive development. Who did the Nordic countries nominate? You guessed it, a government official. Is this usual? No. The body has been traditionally dominated by academic representatives. Only 25% of the new ILC members are government officials, and they hail from Egypt, Thailand, China, Mongolia, Russia, Ecuador, uh, Nicaragua, and Cyprus, with only the last of these countries being a fully-fledged democracy. Again, we see a deviation uh, with the Nordics from the tendencies in other, at least, Western uh, democracies when it comes to appointing uh, international judges and experts. To be fair, three of the eight Nordic ILC members over the past 80 years have been academics, although notably two were Finnish and one had an earlier lengthy career in the state. Moreover, the Nordics can't even claim gender equality or ethnic diversity in their appointments. With two exceptions, all ICJ and ILC appointments by the Nordics have been white men. 
The United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and the USA have surprisingly, perhaps, led the way on diversity. The final vignette concerns the ongoing and increasingly heated debates across the Nordic states on the rising number of foreign academics, people such as myself. In Norway, Cecilia Hellesveit has argued that this threatens the advancement of, of Nordic states' interests in international law. She argued in a piece in Mornbladder, if you only bring in foreigners, you get people who don't necessarily have an interest in managing Norway's positions in international law and international relations. This assumption did not go uncontested. University of Oslo professor Guy Ulfstein responded, it is true that each country tries to influence the content of international law based on its interests, but this in no way means that those who work with international law as a science should do the same directly. So surprising as uh, Cecilia Hellesweit's point was for many of us, she also found much support suggesting that her position might be a deeper and more broadly held conviction, uh, at least in Norway and perhaps in the Nordics. Part of her argument was that due to the comparatively small number of international legal scholars uh, in the region, Nordic states could not afford the luxury of fully independent scholarship. In other words, the first duty of Nordic jurists in international law, even in academia in 2022, was to serve the state. With these three vignettes in mind on the close relationship between Nordic international lawyers and the state, I would like to return to the renowned idea that international lawyers form an invisible college. Coined in 1973 by Oskar Schachter uh, in an Institute of International Law uh, report, um, the idea of this global society of international lawyers was developed further in a 1978 speech published in Asia, if I recall. No, Northwestern University of Law He said, that professional community, though dispersed throughout the world and engaged in diverse occupations, constitutes a kind of invisible college dedicated, dedicated to a common intellectual enterprise. As is the case of other disciplines, its members are engaged in a continuous process of communication and collaboration. The metaphor of the invisible college of international lawyers has been powerful in sustaining the idea that international jurists are, one, a cohesive grouping, and two, hold a common ideal uh, and mission. Indeed, on the concept's 40-year anniversary, uh, Bilal Pando wrote, it is one of the most popular descriptions of our profession and faithfully depicts the intuitive self-image that comes to our minds when we meet. Moreover, Bilal Pando concluded that our profession continues to believe in the pursuit of a common intellectual enterprise. Nonetheless, the notion of this invisible college has its healthy share of critics. The first concerns Schachter's assumption that the field of international law is a unified discipline and his prediction that further development towards specialization was not likely in the near future. History has not been kind. 
The explosion of specific international, uh, specific international law regimes and tribunals from the late 1980s led instead to a competing narrative of the fragmentation of international law. While some scholars, uh, including uh, from the Nordics, have fought a rearguard action pointing to growing jurisprudential coherence, many, if not most, accept that contemporary specialization challenges the discipline's substantive unity. The second critique of Schachter concerns the idea that this college has carried a unitary understanding of international law. In her 2017 book, Is International Law International? Anthony, Anthea Roberts argues that international lawyers may be better described as a divisible college rather than an indivisible college. Drawing on analysis of international law academics and textbooks, she claims that its members hail from different states and regions and often form separate, though sometimes overlapping communities with their own understanding and approaches as well as their own distinct influences and spheres of influence. This fragmentation of the international law community leads Roberts to advocate instead for the discipline of comparative international law, where we study how different lawyers in different states understand and interpret law, uh, international law. In this address, I want to take up a third and partly overlapping critique. It concerns the double hatting by co the college's members as state officials, something that Schachter was himself deeply concerned with in 1978. On one hand, Schachter memorably describes this de doublement fonctionnel uh, in partly positive terms. He writes, the, the invisible college thus extends into the sphere of government resulting in a penetration pacifique of ideas from the non-governmental into official channels. He notes that international lawyers acting as state officials may be particularly well-placed to help build international and national consensus on the drafting of new treaties and legislation. And they might help embed rule of law principles, la conscience juridique, more broadly in international law. However, on the other hand, Schachter spends much time detailing the challenges of this overlap between the scholarly and the state spheres, or the official spheres. He notes that the penetration uh, into the governmental sphere uh, by international jurists is not one way, and they are likely to be influenced by their state roles. This was a concern because government officials, he writes, often tend to suspect or disdain objective views as divorced from reality and insufficiently responsive to national aims. To be sure, Schachter is empathetic. He notes the myriad of ways in which government lawyers can struggle, often reasonably and sometimes necessarily, to rise above national aims and interests. And he notes that one should not presume that individual members of a particular nationality shared the same political outlook. At the same time, he argues that it would be myopic to minimize the influence of national positions on the views taken by the great majority of international lawyers. And he notes, though doesn't endorse, 
the call by some international jurists for a clear and sharp separation of the scientific from the governmental. It is these last observations by Schachter that I wish to use in examining the role of Nordic jurists in international law historically. The three vignettes I began with suggest a Nordic exceptionalism in international law, with extensive double hatting by Nordic jurists as state officials and experts, whether concurrently or sequentially, and a focus by these jurists on the advancement of national interests. In the remainder of the of this presentation, I will seek to raise three questions concerning this shadow of the state. Who, what, of who, why, and what? So firstly, who are the Nordic jurists in international law, and to what extent do they play these multiple roles? Secondly, why are Nordic jurists more likely to be embedded in the state uh, than elsewhere? And three, what are the effects of this double-hatting on legal, legal method and thematic focus? In doing so, I need to underline three important caveats. First, I do not draw on Schachter's critical observations to make a normative argument. The three questions posed are empirical or, hist or historical in nature. I'm not concerned with whether international lawyers should or should not be more independent of states. Second, I am not a legal historian or even a historian of international law. I thus speak with some trepidation. Many of you are uh, experts on particular personalities and periods and, uh, and have immersed yourself in the relevant archival material. This I cannot claim. Nonetheless, perhaps my amateur attempt will lay the ground for a more professional discussion in the remainder of the conference. Third, there is no attempt here to come to any definitive conclusions, but rather suggest both a research uh, agenda, but also considerations that should come into play when researching and assessing the contribution of Nordic jurists. So we begin with the first question, who? In asking who are Nordic jurists um, and to what extent they double hat, we are confronted with a question as to who is a jurist in the field of international law. This is clearly not a descriptive category. There is no international or national association that demands membership for such a title. There is no requirement of a specific diploma, and there is no regular academic title that demarcates the field. The best we have is uh, Oscar Schachter's nebulous analytical category. Its members are engaged in a continuous process of communication and collaboration about international law. That's what we've got. Concretely, uh, perhaps the, this means the most we can say is that a member must engage in some sort of legal role or, uh, or research. So a foreign minister or amb ambassador who just happens to be a lawyer, a member, a Nordic jurist, no. A foreign minister that was previously a legal advisor to or in the uh, or in the foreign ministry or later international judge? Yes, a member, a legal role. A professor of public law that never published on international law? No. A professor of jurisprudence that published on international law? Yes. So a largely functional uh, definition. 
Likewise, we might also wish to define what is meant by a political or state hat. Here I'll be relatively, if not too conservative, and for the most part exclude legal advisors in government departments that have some sort of independent role in advising uh, the government. The politicians, those in bureaucratic leadership and diplomatic service, or who represent governments in court, yes, here the role entails, entails clear advancement of state interest. With these definitions, we can develop some rough indicators. Already in the vignettes, two were analyzed, ICJ judges and ILC members. Let us take a few more. Firstly, I checked the scholarship as to who is considered to have been the leading or most prominent lawyer in the period for this conference in each Nordic country. These are the results in descending order of certainty. We have uh, Francis Sahagrup from Norway, uh, Raphael Erich from Finland, Max uh, Svensson from Denmark, and Hjalmar Holmerschild from Sweden. Uh, although I got the order wrong then, we first had our Swedish judge and we finished there with Max Sørensen from Denmark. When we look at their academic, international and state roles, uh, it's quite remarkable. All four were professors at a relatively uh, early stage of their career. Um, all of them had leading international roles, many in the uh, in Institute for International Law, which I mentioned earlier, the Institute de, de Droit International. Uh, many were involved in the League of Nations, and many were judges on the Permanent Court of International Just uh, Justice, or the European Court of Human Rights, European Court of Justice, members of the Permanent Court of Arbitration, PCA, and so forth. And when we come to the final column, um, we find that all were ambassadors, three were prime ministers, uh, and were leading uh, national political uh, figures. Obviously, you may wish to disagree with uh, my choices. For instance, some scholars discuss the duo of Hjalmar uh, Hammarskjöld and Olga uh, um, Hammarskjöld, who ruled the uh, PCIJ as registrar, as Sweden's most influential international lawyers uh, together. But this does little to change the pattern. I have attempted to find uh, a similar uh, Nordic jurist for Iceland. I've contacted my Icelandic colleagues. Uh, they are rather unsure who might fit the, fit the bill uh, and will come back to me with a response. So that's the first uh, uh, to mention. The second uh, concerns uh, Marty Koskini's work on um, leading international lawyers in Finland, which he tracks from the 1890s uh, until today. His list includes nine who were appointed as professors before 1970. And remarkably, only one did not engage in active diplomatic and state service, uh, with, Kos with Koskinen and Emmy commenting on the surprising ease with which Finnish lawyers have moved between diplomacy and the academy. The pattern only partly changes from the 1980s. Third, if we look to the interwar period uh, and the Permanent Court of International Justice, all of the five Nordic judges, bar one, were state uh, uh, officials. This can be contrasted with the remainder of the court, 
we're approximately half the judges. Yes, we're former diplomats and politicians, but the other half were solely professors or judges. We again see Nordic exceptionalism and to some extent small state exceptionalism in this period. Of course, this is only a beginning. Uh, one could construct further indicators according to publications, speeches, association membership, um, judicial appointments, expert roles, conference attendance, and so on, uh, to work out um, who are the, the leading, uh, who are the Nordic jurists, and to what extent they also double hat. But for now, there is enough to suggest that Nordic double hatting was frequent. The next question is why? Why do we see this pattern of behavior? Is it, as Cecilia Hellesweit suggests, um, a matter of size, the lack of lawyers? Is it strategic behavior by lawyers seeking to maximize their influence? Or is it a matter of design by states in the way in which they make their appointments? Or is it all three? We face similar questions in our recent volume on the Nordic legal complex, which Shirsty mentioned at the beginning. It is the fourth of a trilogy of curated comparative analyses started by Lucien Karpik, Terry Halliday, and Malcolm Feely, which was a sociological historical project which sought to understand if lawyers mobilized collectively for what uh, these scholars called political liberalism, defined as basic civil rights, a moderate state, and space for civil society. The first three volumes found and they examine Western Europe, the US, uh, former British colonies, and also different states in Asia and Latin America. And what did they find? That at crucial moments, lawyers often came together as a complex and speaking in the name of the law to press for or defend political liberalism, you know, which can be roughly equated to the rule of law, uh, depending how you define it. However, in our Nordic volume, with a few exceptions, we did not find this to be remotely the case until the 1970s. Instead, in the, in the Nordic countries, the actors who mobilized for political liberalism were largely artists, intellectuals, theologians, peasants. Instead, lawyers formed part of the political complex. They wore the hats of a bureaucrat uh, or a politician working on the inside of government or parliament to advance, ignore, or resist such political liberalism reforms. Even the branch of lawyers uh, with the greatest independence, academics, were largely embedded in the political complex. Hence the ubiquity of the so-called professor politicians, as Doug McCulson calls them, and we'll also speak about, as I understand, uh, in the next paper. Looking at these patterns, uh, we sought to try and understand them. And we also came to three similar explanations. The first is that there was insuffi an insufficient number of lawyers in the Nordic states to really mobilize as a complex uh, for political liberalism. Nordic lawyers were among the last in Europe to organize in bar societies, which only occurred or emerged at the end of the 19th century and initially were mostly about dinner parties. The second is that the politics is that politics and bureaucracy were very open to the legal elites, which would mean that any reform-minded lawyer uh, had a clear alternative 
uh, and perhaps more effective space in which to advance uh, political uh, liberalism. The third is it was by state design. The rule of law in Northern Europe, uh, the Restat, um, was developed under the heavy hand of the state uh, in contradistinction, for example, to France or the US or, or the UK, uh, where it could be argued that it was <laughs> as much a, a bottom-up uh, process. Uh, until the end of the ninth, until early to mid 19th century, Nordic lawyers faced very strong regulation in how they practiced, particularly in Denmark and Norway. In our book, we don't give clear answers, but we sought to puncture at least some myths about the, the rosy bottom up development of political liberalism in the Nordics. It was equally directed by a strong state with significant control over the legal profession. So returning to the, uh, the, the different sphere, as just indicated, of Nordic jurists and legal internationalism, the three explanations here uh, are arguably analogous. So why do we have so, uh, so many double-hatting uh, Nordic jurists in international law? Well, first, and yes, there are fewer international lawyers compared to at least other medium-sized uh, and large states. Secondly, politics and diplomacy provide an opportunity for professors and judges to test and advance their ideas internationally. It was often literally a very short walk for professors from their offices to the parliament and the prime minister's office, and from there a short trip to The Hague or Geneva, where we particularly saw uh, the international legal profession, if we can call that, uh, and at least market emerge from the early 1920s. Thirdly, the Nordic states may have wished to maintain control of their international experts and judges, especially in strategic spheres of material interest. This might explain why Nordic countries have nominated slightly more independent legal experts to the European Court of Human Rights compared, say, to the International Court of Justice or the European Court of Justice. I would like to argue, though, that this third and latter reason, state design, may be particularly important, and especially when confronting the types of questions raised for this conference. There is a temptation to see Nordic jurists as cosmopolitan, independent actors advancing universalist international law, but it should be balanced by the observation that these Nordic jurists may also be a vehicle of state diplomacy. This is arguably quite apparent in the 1920s, where the relationship between Nordic jurists and their home state was arguably uh, mutually advantageous. And it can be seen through the, uh, again, uh, the Institute for International Law established in 1873. It was a veritable royal castle of multiple hats in international law. In the 1920s, 11 of its members had served as ministers in their home governments and eight as ambassadors. And this is partly because membership was limited and it was premised on a peculiar form of symbolic capital, to use Bourdieu's uh, approach. One had to demonstrate both legal utopianism and political pragmatism to come into uh, or come through the gates of this particular uh, castle. However, uh, in a wonderful article by Sacrist and Bachur, uh, they note that it was smaller European states who were 
arguably the most able to exploit this hybrid demand, partly because the universalist principles of international law, from the concept of international solidarity to the ideal of equality between all states, tended to generally coincide with the interests of their diplomacy. The Institute members from larger states in Europe and the Americas lacked the same relationships with their home states. And this comes strongly uh, forward in an example they give uh, relating to the codification of a future international court, a key demand of the Institute. The debate was first launched by the Committee of Legal Experts, whose members for the most part were IDI Institute Fellows, set up by the Council of the League of Nations, LON, in 1920. Their demand for an international conference to be held on the subject matter, included on the agenda of the, of the General Assembly in the League, was met with general scepticism by the Great Powers and the British Secretary General of the League of Nations. However, on the initiative of Sweden, through the voice of its representative, Hammarskjöld, former Prime Minister and an active member of the Institute, and with the pressure of Anzalotti, Assistant Secretary General of the League of Nations, but also a prominent member of the Institute, the issue was eventually included on the agenda of the Fifth General Assembly held in 1924. The report presented there by Rollin, representative of Belgium, but also a member of the Institute, uh, called for the constitution of a committee of experts in charge of preparing such a conference to, and push the project further. Under the presidency and the vice presidency of two Institute members, Hammarskjöld and Vienna, the newly created committee hastened to request the opinion of the Institute. Um, so we have a veritable uh, merry-go-round here uh, in terms of double-hatting even within international institutions. But we see here particularly the role of, uh, of the Nordic actors uh, in, in their relationships with their home state. It's worth also pointing out that Rolin was also a, uh, a Belgian uh, politician, <laughs> but Anzalotti, the Italian, uh, was never part of the uh, uh, Italian uh, government. So the smaller states were much more able to mobilize uh, their, their home states when needed, and possibly uh, it went uh, in reverse as well. And the conclusion to this story is that it reveals the IDI Institute members in their different guises. Uh, and to quote, the social omnipresence of the members of the group had the effect of converting this heteronomy of international lawyers into a specific influence of international law. Stepping back, it is worth noting that the Nordics and other small European states potentially have a comparative advantage in producing heavy-hitting double-hatters. This was especially important in the 1920s as the demand for skilled but trustworthy international lawyers for the new courts, organizations, conferences, and arbitrations that increased dramatically in the post-war period. The short distance between academic and politics meant that the Nordics and other small states could produce experts who were full-blooded professors with a publication resume uh, to match, and simultaneously fully-blooded politicians, often operating at the highest level. The idea that this was partly by state design, that the state stood to benefit from promoting these actors um, in international spaces, is strengthened by the fact that the practice of double-hatting continued even when the number of international law academics increased dramatically in the Nordic countries. 
There still remains a strong tendency for Nordic states to use experts with, with whom they have a close connection. A tendency that can also be observed the appointments of lawyers to lead, lead national public law commissions. So when we look back at the ILC nomination in 2021, it's notable that, that there are perhaps, I don't know, 80, 100 uh, academic international lawyers in the, in the Nordic states, but the Nordic government settled on a government advisor and ambassador as their candidate. Now, to be fair, <laughs> he's a very gifted uh, and experienced international lawyer, but the promotion of his candidature is reminiscent of the 1920s. If you read the brochure, he is presented equally as an academic uh, despite his full-time service, government service since graduation. And Marty Koskineni makes a similar point on the attitude of the Finnish foreign ministry. He writes, the services of the academic jurists were appreciated uh, by the foreign ministry and no great gap appeared between the political alignment of jurists working predominantly on one or the other side. This situation changed, changed somewhat only in the 1980s, some years later than in other European countries, as the field and its priorities expanded and specialised. Rising interest in human rights, the environment and European law was accompanied by new priorities. The state could no longer expect unreserved loyalty from the new generation of international jurists growing up in the country's three law faculties. So I will move on from the why question, um, but at least have tried uh, uh, to show there may be multiple reasons for the double hatting. And one of those reasons Maybe the advantage that it's uh, that it served, the advantages that it gave to 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 Nordic uh, governments, as much as the Nordic jurists themselves. We now turn to the final and most difficult question: What positions did these Nordic jurists adopt? In particular, has double hatting affected the legal internationalism of Nordic jurists? Theoretically, there are good reasons for thinking that it does and does not. For example, empirical research has found that Norwegian judges that were previously state officials and state legal advisors were more likely to find for the state in their judgments and influence their fellow judges to do so. On the other hand, some strands of institutionalist uh, uh, theory suggest that actors, lawyers here, adapt their goals to the role they expected to, they expected to play. This may be out of moral integrity, uh, socialization, uh, uh, going back to Shirsty's earlier comment, or the strategic fear of reputational consequences. So actors are able to manage the different hats according uh, to the role, in the same way that we manage multiple identities on a daily basis. Academic, parent, amateur football player, whatever it might be. Moving empirically now, studying actors' beliefs, motivations, thought processes, potential influences uh, is, of course, rather challenging. One approach is biographic to track, for example, individual Nordic jurists. 
such as uh, Astrid uh, Shelgard Pedersen from the University of Copenhagen does, with Nordic judges on the ICJ and the Permanent Court of International Justice. And she finds evidence both ways. So on one hand, she finds that the um, Swedish judge, uh, Stude Petton, uh, drew, on his, Petton uh, drew on his prior judicial rather than political identity in his time on the ICJ between 1967 uh, to 1976. He was most concerned with procedural questions and what he considered to be the admission of overly political questions for advisory opinions by the rest of the court. For example, in the 1971 uh, Namibia advisory opinion, he criticized the court for rejecting the South African apartheid regime's request for an ad hoc judge. He finished his term rather unpopular in the court and was not uh, re-elected. But the point being, he seemed to play a rather different role on the court than he had at home. On the other hand, she notes that the Norwegian justice, Helga Klarsted, uh, was perhaps more swayed by his home state allegiance uh, and, and charts his departure from his doctrinal standpoint on reservations to jurisdiction when the case involved Norway. An alternative approach is to look at the longer durée of legal positions. Do the positions of Nordic legal jurists largely coincide with Nordic state interests? Several, if not many, scholars have charted such dovetailing already in the first half of the 20th century, but noted its limited explanatory power. This is because Nordic jurists largely adopted a positivist approach to international law uh, in that period, which was also in favour uh, uh, more broadly uh, at that time, after the formalist period of the late 19th century. And this positivist and universalist approach neatly coincided with Nordic state positions in international law. Nordic states were concerned with questions of neutrality and sovereignty vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the great powers, and, and particularly if you say questions of Finnish independence and Norwegian independence. Nordic jurists could advance arguments that were simultaneously universalist and positivist while also being in their state interest. Nonetheless, even in this period, uh, Matikoskiemi, in the case of Finnish international lawyers, suggested the alignment was more than fortuitous. He argues that the state was not only the central concept of the field for them, but also the focus of commitment and defence. And he partly comes to this conclusion by pointing to the choice of topics of research by Finnish jurists which also coincided with Finnish state interest. Finnish international lawyers, he writes, have not been prone to reflecting on the principles of a just war or other types of philosophical speculation. Their outlook has been, generally speaking, that of doctrinal positivists interested in the legal aspects of Finland's international position. In any case, a somewhat natural experiment arises when the winds of international law begin to change, at least from the 1950s, where we have a clearer focus 
uh, and more ambitious focus on universal protections, including for the individual, not just states, together with domestic application of international law. In different projects on this period, and, and firstly mentioned some of the, the projects we've had at University of Oslo in cooperation with many Nordic universities, we've charted Nordic exceptionalism in international law, issues on which the Nordics were far from being frontrunners, far from their brand uh, of being moral superpowers. Instead, Nordic states deviated from or actively sought to undermine uh, universalist projects on international law. Let us take one of them, um, the domestic turn in international law and the proposed European Court, uh, European, the proposed European Convention on Human Rights and its court, which would have jurisdiction to hear complaints by individuals. It, it, uh, it was, as Mikhail Madsen uh, described, a quintessentially universal project, but as, as he, Johann Carlsen Schaffer, Shirsty uh, Berthagen uh, and others have shown it was subject not only to British reluctance, but also Nordic reluctance. And these states worked together to water down the text. Um, but not only did they do that, uh, the Nordic states exhibited reluctance at almost every subsequent stage on ratification, acceptance of the direct effects of the convention, incorporation in the domestic legal order, the use of European court precedents in national, national law, and so forth. The methodological question for us then is, how have Nordic jurists of international law responded at the, each of these key moments of reluctance? And particularly, is there a divergence between those who are or have been more deeply embedded in the state and those who have been less embedded in the state? Some evidence uh, suggests a strong alignment uh, where there is double hatting. Uh, Shursky noted uh, that the common position of Norwegian politicians, bureaucrats, and experts between 1949 and 1951 on the drafting was that they are norms which may form the basis for interstate legal obligations, but not rules to be implemented and or enforced by any supranational entity. Thus, perhaps it's no surprise that one of our big four Nordic jurists, Max Sorensen, is said to have said this to a colleague at the university. His colleague recounts, he, Sorensen, looked at me for a long time and then responded with amazing patience. Don't be naive, Virgil, he said. This court will never function. No government will accept being dragged before an international court by its own citizens. Painstakingly, Professor Sorensen explained that the rules had been made so as to allow compromises, friendly settlements, before cases ever came before the court. There was no talk of jurisprudence here, my teachers said, only of politics. The only reason that governments had agreed to establish this court in the first place is to do with the end of the Second World War and they wished to enhance the importance of the individual now as opposed to the grandeur of the state. He later went on to, 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 to leave this uh, uh, institution um, and his views slightly uh, changed, but it gives a sense at least of what experts thought at the time. Likewise, Johan Carlsen-Schatter has shown in Sweden in the 1960s, politicians realised 
that ambiguity over whether Sweden was a monist or a dualist state risked international obligations, such as the European Convention of Human Rights and the court's decision, decisions being directly enforceable in Sweden. This was of great concern. An expert commission was created, which resolved the matter in favor of dualism, as in the other Nordic states, such international decisions would not be uh, directly uh, enforceable, at least then. To be sure, there are exceptions to the rule. In an, a new master's thesis on the former Norwegian justice minister and influential uh, Norwegian jurist, Tadio Abold, he makes a journey from being a state apologist, for example, uh, critiquing the new convention, uh, European convention during its drafting, to being a universalist on international law. And here socialization may be important as Wolf's engagement in Europe and with the developing world seemed to shift the locus of his thinking away from a more national state-centric uh, approach. And finally, by the 1980s, we see the polarization of the Nordic uh, legal community, as in Finland, especially on questions of the European Convention, international human rights, environmental law, and so forth. We see a body of Nordic jurists begin to assess Nordic laws from the perspective of international standards. But then for us, happily enough, this creates the possibilities for more focused research. Does double hatting uh, as a state official influence current views on key questions of international law? The problem though is this would take us far beyond the period for this conference, uh, but at least offers the possibility to test the hypothesis. So to conclude the third question, um, the history of this confluence of jurist and state views is clearly brief, potted, incomplete, uh, and perhaps even problematic, but it gives a sense to, as to the manner of potential state influence and how we might research. So to conclude and open up for uh, discussion, I've sought in this uh, address to caution against viewing Nordic jurists especially prominent ones in the period 1880s to the 1970s through merely an academic or cosmopolitan lens. Nordic Judas were often deeply embedded in the state. While this may have been a result of the small size of the Nordic states and strategic behavior by these jurists, which it may also be a result of state design. Nordic jurists had the requisite symbolic capital to present as neutral international lawyers while being close to their home governments and providing a valuable resource for small states. Moreover, existing scholarship seems to, seems to suggest that Nordic states could be reasonably confident that most, if not all, Nordic jurists would adopt largely state-friendly positions, at least until the 1970s. This should therefore give pause uh, in undertaking historical research that decontextualizes Nordic jurists from their, from their political habitus and only concentrate on their legal habitus, for example, in the ILC or the Institute for International Law. One should be ever mindful of the shadow of the state in the trajectory of Nordic lawyers and its potential effects on their legal interpretation and production. Otherwise, we just risk reproducing the Nordic brand rather than producing Nordic histories. Thank you.